Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Climate talks in the People's Republic set the stage for a technological revolution. Maybe we should call it Green China. The green race is on, and the United States is not a part of that race. In fact, it is remarkably absent from that race and is letting developing countries take the lead. We talk with the UN's chief climate diplomat about the road to China and beyond. Also past and present collide in coal country as mining threatens to bury an historic battlefield. It's worse than burying it. It's just completely obliterating, done away with it altogether. They'll ruin uh, an opportunity for a national battlefield monument, which could be a real boon to the economy. The long-forgotten battle over Blair Mountain. These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stay with us. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The Obama administration plans to put solar panels on the roof of the White House, or rather, back on the White House roof. President Jimmy Carter put them up there first in 1976 with an eye to the future. In the year 2000, the solar water heater behind me, which is being dedicated today, will still be here, supplying cheap, efficient energy. A generation from now, this solar heater can either be a curiosity, a museum piece, an example of a road not taken, or it can be just a small part of one of the greatest and most exciting adventures ever undertaken by the American people. The documentary, A Road Not Taken, chronicles what happened to those White House solar panels. Today, one is a museum piece at the Jimmy Carter Library in Atlanta. President Reagan had the panels removed in 1986. Now President Obama has told the Department of Energy to buy new solar panels for the executive mansion, but U.S. manufacturers will face stiff competition from Chinese companies. China has become a major provider of solar panels because of high internal demand and low labor costs. This past week, the Chinese city of Tianjin was showcasing its clean energy technology for delegates from around the world. Negotiators gathered there for the final U.N. climate meeting, before the summit in Cancun at the end of the year. The last summit in Copenhagen last December ended in confusion and frustration without a new international treaty. But there's an ancient Chinese proverb, failure is the mother of success. And so Christiana Figueres, the new executive secretary of the UN Climate Talk, says now she's cautiously optimistic. I think the uh, the major difference is that uh, we all went to Copenhagen with the ambition of having one huge legally binding agreement that somehow would miraculously solve all climate change problems. Um, and I think the big lesson learned is that there is no such magic bullet. This is a major effort that the global community is embarked on, which is the transformation 
of the structure of the economy, and that's not going to happen overnight. The purpose here for Cancun is to identify the cornerstones of what will become a new green revolution, a new economy, but to do it in a much more realistic way. Cancun, of course, is the big meeting in Mexico scheduled for the end of November, the beginning of December. But are you saying that you don't anticipate or expect a new international agreement to be added to the Kyoto Protocol, which lapses in, what, 2012? Let me put it this way. I think the, the conclusion is that you cannot build a tall building without setting the foundation. And last year, they tried to build a tall building without having any foundations. This year, countries have been focusing and are quite eager to set the foundations in Cancun, upon which they will then build. There are many countries that are still very committed to building the tall building, which would be a legally binding agreement. Well, let's parse the problems. Foundations are built out of concrete. What are the concrete expectations that you have for this? First, the very important objective of capturing the commitments that have been made during this year but that have not been officialized. We have all industrialized countries having made commitments as to what targets they would be able to commit to with respect to their emission reductions. We also have 38 developing countries that have uh, made public their intent to manage their carbon growth. Since we are in China, let me just share with you the uh, Chinese commitment. China has a national climate change program. They're very serious about this, and, and they're doing it because of two major reasons. A, because they know that it is good for their own economy and their own growth, and B, because they know that it is their responsibility toward the rest of the world. China and the United States produce, what, 40% of the world's uh, greenhouse gases. Is the United States doing enough? No, sadly, the United States is really uh, not doing enough. The United States is in a, I would say, in a very sad situation where over eight years, it did not participate in any of these global efforts. The United States is vulnerable to the negative effects of climate change, as we have seen recently the reliance on fossil fuel led to a very dangerous spill in the Gulf of Mexico. So the United States is not exempt from the negative impacts of climate. On the other hand, the United States could very well see addressing climate change in a responsible manner as a very important opportunity to give a boost to its clean technologies. The green race is on, and the United States is not a part of that race. In fact, it is remarkably uh, absent from that race and is letting developing countries take the lead. I guess China spent, what, two times as much on clean energy last year than the United States? Good example. They are having uh, one million new jobs being created in the clean energy sector, because China knows that it is to its competitive advantage to prepare now for what we will undeniably see, which is a low-carbon future. You have an incredibly hard job, and you sound cautiously optimistic. I'm wondering, how are you holding up? Wonderfully. (laughs) It's not hard. Uh, I have a passion for this topic. Actually, it's the most inspiring job in the world. 
That's Christiana Figanis, the new head of the U.N. Climate Talks, speaking to us from Tianjin, China. Jennifer Morgan was also in Tianjin. She once served as a senior advisor on climate change to the British and German governments. These days, Jennifer Morgan is director of the Climate and Energy Program at the World Resources Institute. I think the mood is mostly one of pragmatism, a sense that there's quite a lot at stake with these negotiations. So you do have a greater sense that people are trying to find solutions to get some outcomes at the next big meeting in Cancun. Jennifer, what's the the biggest nut to crack in the climate talks? I think one piece is that countries around the world, many of whom are already moving to put renewable energy laws in place and energy efficiency laws in place, are looking to see that the United States is really serious about tackling this problem. The lack of the Senate ability to even vote on a climate bill has brought a bit of dismay, I would say, internationally. And so they, I think one big step is need to hear from the president that this remains a priority and that he stands by the promise that he made in Copenhagen. Can there be a new international climate treaty without U.S. legislation? It is possible. We At WRI, we have done some analysis on how far the U.S. could reduce its emissions based on some very basic um, authorities that the administration already has given to it by the Supreme Court. And we found that if the U.S. is able to, the administration, to really push far ahead and states move forward and acting, that without legislation they could get close to the Copenhagen pledge that the president made last year. In the absence of federal legislation, the states have been moving ahead. 30 or 31 states have renewable energy portfolio standards, which demand that there be an increased amount of renewable energy used in their states. But there is the effort in California now to roll that back, to move California uh, away from a renewable energy standard. Yes, I don't understand that effort at all. California is one of the leaders which has benefited it not only from obviously reducing emissions that cause global warming, but also making it much more efficient and therefore less vulnerable to electricity uh, and energy shocks and also positioning itself in the clean energy race as far as investments in renewable energy. So it doesn't make sense either from an economic or an energy or jobs or climate perspective, and I, I certainly hope that it that those efforts to roll that back don't succeed. Are we running out of time? The um, UN scientists uh, had hoped to keep global warming below 2 degrees Celsius. Uh, There was a leaked document earlier this year that suggests we're headed to 3 degrees Celsius. Well, we are certainly running out of time. I mean, the pace of these negotiations is so far away from the pace of the buildup of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and the impacts that are already starting to happen around the world. And what we would hope is that the gap would be closed between that science and the political will. We need emissions optimally to peak in 2015 to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. And unless leaders really re-emerge and make sure that the world collectively is on track, we are not going to be able to avoid some of those impacts. I remember in Copenhagen, the, 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 the sense of enthusiasm was palpable. And then by the time this thing ended, uh, there was such a sense of disappointment. I'm just wondering now, do you feel that the momentum 
has been regained. Some of the momentum is being regained. I think this weekend, actually, there is a day of action on the 10th of October in 2010, where I believe there are actions planned in over 170 countries around the world to take action and show that the movement to tackle climate change amongst youth and and everyday citizens is still strong. And I hope that that can uh, enthuse the governments to listen to their citizens and not be just dismayed from one meeting, but to really take on this challenge and find solutions because time is ticking and there is an opportunity to grasp in Cancun. Well, Jen, good luck. Um, I look forward to seeing you in Cancun, Mexico. Thanks. I think we will need luck, but hopefully luck will be on our side. Jennifer Morgan is director of the Climate and Energy Program of the Washington-based World Resources Institute. She's in Tianjin, China, for the climate negotiations. Jennifer, thanks a lot. You're very welcome. Thank you. Living on Earth will have extensive coverage from Cancun when climate negotiators meet in December. And check out our website. There you can explore the issues, the effects, and the science of climate change. You'll find it at LOE.org. And while you're online, head over to our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. Just ahead, a bee expert wins a honey of an award, half a million dollars. So wheat. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The battle over mountaintop removal just heated up. Coal companies and West Virginia's Governor Joe Manchin have sued the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. The EPA wants to curb the destructive form of mining, while the coal industry is trying to get a permit for what would be the largest mountaintop removal project ever. It's at Arch Coal's mine in Logan County, West Virginia. In the mountain state, mining is the political issue. And in the race for the U.S. Senate, Governor Manchin, the Democrat, and Republican businessman John Racy are angling to show who's the best friend of coal. Certainly it's not third-party candidate Jesse Johnson. Johnson is among those fighting to preserve the Logan site. This isn't the first battle that's been fought over these mountain ridges. They were also the scene of a bloody, nearly forgotten chapter in American labor history. Whereas Eloise Jeff Young tells it, mining rubble now threatens to bury the memory once and for all. It wasn't something Jimmy Weekly learned in school. When he was a child, the state erased the Battle of Blair Mountain from textbooks. But Weekly knows the history the way many people here in West Virginia's coal country do, from stories passed down in family lore. I've heard many, many stories on it. This was the largest battle. Weekly, a painfully thin, chain-smoking 70-year-old, stands on the ridge not far from his home. It's where union miners and coal operators once met in one of labor's bloodiest battles. See, the north was already unionized, but the south wasn't. So they started a march to come here. Now, Weekly's among a handful of local people working to save a mountain and resurrect a forgotten piece of American history. Come all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? 
In late August 1921, some 10,000 Union coal miners armed themselves with hunting rifles and World War I weapons and started to march. There's been nothing quite like it in modern American history. It was the largest civil insurrection in the United States since the Civil War. Labor historian James Green at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, is working on a book about the battle. Green says the marchers were heading to Mingo County, which was controlled by non-union coal operators. Martial law had been declared in Mingo County. Many of the union organizers were put in jail. They were not allowed jury trials. No one was allowed to even read the newspaper in Mingo County. And they were determined to march on Mingo County and try to liberate their brothers from prison. To get there, the miners had to cross Blair Mountain. That's where coal operators had a mercenary force of their own, led by a sheriff named Don Chafin. Chafin and his men had fortified Blair Mountain with machine guns and their own force of over 3,000 men. So it really was a full-scale battle in what journalists at the time uh, referred to as a virtual civil war, and they did start shooting at each other. The battle raged five days. At least 16 died. Coal operators dropped crude bombs from biplanes, the first aerial bombing of U.S. civilians. It took federal troops to end the fighting, 1,800 of them the largest peacetime deployment against civil unrest. But maybe the most remarkable thing about the Battle of Blair Mountain is that very few Americans have even heard of it. In West Virginia, Jimmy Weekly and his allies want to change that. Weekly walks Blair Mountain's ridge with Tom Rule, a photographer and history buff, and Jesse Johnson, a filmmaker and political candidate. They begin sifting through the leaf litter. Well, we were up here the other day and... Uh... We came up with a shell casing with a with a bunch of shell casings right in this little area. You know, there's more than a million rounds of spent cartridges laying all over this, and you know we had metal detector hits going all the way up this ridge line here. The age, type, and location of the spent shells tell Johnson he's on the very spot where miners and mercenaries fought it out nearly 90 years ago. Johnson's connection runs deep. His great great uncle was among the Union marchers. Uh, you know, I, I, I feel honored to be here, and I feel humbled to walk this hallowed ground. It's no different than walking on any of the, the great battlefields from the Civil War or from the Revolutionary War, except that this particular battle was for the people and giving people their rights. Johnson thinks Blair Mountain could be a tourist destination if it got the right protection and promotion. He's trying to make it an issue in his long-shot campaign for the U.S. Senate. Both the Democratic and Republican candidates are strong coal supporters. Johnson's a candidate for the Mountain Party, which formed in opposition to mountaintop removal. And that mining puts Blair Mountain's past and present on a collision course. A short walk from the battle site, Johnson, Rule, and Weekly watch trucks loaded with drilling and blasting equipment climb the hill. And they're blasting up there. Yeah, they're coming right this way with the uh, mountaintop removal job. Going right on through. They're trying to close it. Arch Coal Company wants to expand its mountaintop removal mine to blast away the remaining ridge and expose billions of dollars worth of coal. At peak production, that could employ some 230 miners. But Rule argues that deep mines could get the coal without burying the historic site. It's worse than burying it. It's just completely obliterating, doing away with it altogether. They'll ruin 
uh, an opportunity for a, a national battlefield monument, which could be a real boon to the economy. The mining added urgency to the campaign to protect Blair Mountain, but that effort has taken some strange twists and turns. Appalachian State University archaeology professor Harvard Ayers worked to get the National Park Service to recognize the site, and in March 2009, it paid off. Ayers says the Park Service put Blair Mountain on the National Register of Historic Places. We uh, popped the champagne corks and celebrated across the Appalachians to see this wonderful and important archaeological site finally protected. But, Ayers says, the celebration did not last long. It lasted about six or seven days. (laughs) On April 6th, the state historic preservation officer uh, sent a letter to the National Park Service saying, you know, guys, we just screwed up. And we just happened to find some things that got lost on our desk. And now it appears that more people object than don't object. Park Service rules say that if more than half of the affected landowners object, a site cannot be on the National Register. And in December, the register's keeper removed Blair Mountain from the list. Ayers thought that late discovery of new landowners seemed fishy. So he hired a real estate lawyer to track down deeds and tax records. Lo and behold, he found that they had two dead people on there. One person that had been dead for, I don't know, 20-something years. It was, it was just amazing. And taking those numbers then, we found that indeed uh, the state had fudged the numbers. According to Ayers' list, most landowners support putting the site on the register. Ayers, along with local groups, the Sierra Club and the National Trust for Historic Preservation, sued the Park Service. A Park Service spokesperson declined to comment. At the West Virginia State Historic Preservation Office, Deputy Director Susan Pierce says her department just followed the rules. We provided lists of property owners. There's been a lot of talk regarding the list that may or may not have included folks that were deceased. However, we've moved forward from that. Pierce says the site is still eligible for listing on the register. She wants the Park Service to start over with the nomination. But a petition circulating among historians rejects that approach and urges the Park Service to restore Blair Mountain to the National Register. Historian James Green is among the three dozen academics, artists, and filmmakers who have signed on. This is where an important battle was fought for industrial freedom. And to not only forget about it and leave it out of the textbooks, but then wipe out uh, the physical reality of that place is also to eliminate a very important memory from the national landscape. Coal truck roars to the foot of Blair Mountain through the little community of Blair, or what's left of it. Jimmy Weekly walks a grassy roadside lot where houses once stood. Well, you see all the empty spaces here? There was one, two, three houses here. There's one. A little more than a decade ago, there were nearly 500 homes in Blair. Now, there are about 40. Weekly says it's due to the mountaintop removal mining. The constant noise and dust from blasting and excavation took a toll. Then coal companies bought out landowners. Weekly has stayed put. For my price, it can't be sold. I've lived there 70 years, sir. They offered me $2 million for it. I turned it down. Two, $2 million? Yes, sir. I mean, that's a pretty that's a pretty plot. Don't get me wrong. It's really pretty, but $2 million seems pretty rich. <laughs> yeah, that was not rich enough for me. 
If Arch Coal gets its EPA permit, it could mine more than 2,000 acres, bending in a horseshoe shape right around Weekly's little plot of land. After that, the wooded hills and stream he grew up along would look like the mined-out sites nearby. Weekly points to one across the valley. Look over here to this place right here. You don't see no mountain ranges. It's all flat. Ten square miles over there. Now, that's what they're wanting to do here. And I'll be damned if I'm going to set up there and let them kind of cover me up. And they ain't going to do it. For most of America, what happened on Blair Mountain is long forgotten. But here in Appalachia, it's a battle that's still being fought. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Blair, West Virginia. comes in many forms, and every year the MacArthur Foundation rewards genius in many fields, and sometimes many fingertips. A jazz pianist and composer is among the 23 winners of the MacArthur Award, the so-called Genius Grant, this year. So is a stone carver, a linguist working to preserve the Algonquin language, a TV writer, and John DeBerry, a Caltech biophysicist who studies jellyfish. In my work, we study both the successes and the failures of biological systems, and then we try to take that knowledge and use it to improve engineering systems, uh, like underwater vehicles, uh, cardiac diagnosis of heart failure, and uh, more recently, wind energy. In recognition for their creative contributions in their fields, MacArthur Fellows each receive half a million dollars, no strings attached. One winner who created plenty of buzz this year is Marla Spivak, a professor of entomology. She studies honeybees at the University of Minnesota. Congratulations, Professor. Thank you very much. So how did you find out that you were a MacArthur Fellow? They set me up. They told me a woman named Liz Brooks was coming to talk to me about a freelance story she was writing, and um, she didn't show up. And instead, the phone in my office rang, and they asked for Liz. They said they were calling for Liz Brooks, and I said that she hadn't arrived. And they said, well, they were calling for her and that I should sit down. And at that point, I thought Liz Brooks had died. (laughs) I didn't even know her. (laughs) But So it took me a while to figure out what the whole conversation was about. (laughs) But then they let me know that I had received this fellowship. And what did you think? Well, I was floored, actually. I didn't really believe they had the right person. And I was having a lot of trouble getting my mind around what (laughs) they were trying to tell me. So I had to take some notes (laughs) as they were speaking to help it sink in. Your work with bees sounds like fun. Where did you get the passion for bees? Well... I've been interested in bees since I've been 18 years old, and I've worked for different beekeepers and done research in different areas, and I just have loved bees ever since I read about them and started working with them. But when I was reading about about you and your work with bees, it's easy to kind of think that, you know, working with bees is kind of quirky, but they're really important. They pollinate, what, a third of the United States food supply? That's mostly our fruits and vegetables. And if you include alfalfa hay, and, you know, we need seed, alfalfa seed to plant the hay, and considering where the hay is, where the hay goes to our 
dairy industry and our meat industry, then you can see that the benefits of pollination extend way beyond just in fruits and vegetables. So let's talk about your work. What you've been focusing on is um, ways to keep bees healthy. Yes, that's what we do. And that includes things like breeding bees for their own defenses against diseases and parasites. And currently we're looking at resins that bees collect called propolis from certain trees. So up in this area would be poplar trees, birch trees, alder. And they use the resin inside the nest to seal up cracks and to line the nest cavity. And For humans, we've known that propolis has a lot of antimicrobial properties. So, for example, it even has activity against the HIV virus and many other bacteria and fungi and viruses. But no one's ever thought to ask what the resins do for the bees themselves. And we know now from a student's PhD research that it really benefits their immune systems. And then they use it like a varnish or a cement inside the nest. An analogy might be if you are living in a house with dust mites or molds, if you would paint your house inside with these resins, propolis, they would kill off the molds and the dust mites. And so your immune system wouldn't be constantly fighting that battle. I was reading that you also focus on how genetically influenced behaviors confer disease resistance to the entire colonies. Yes, we, we've been breeding bees for um, hygienic behavior, which is a particular behavior of the bees, and that at a colony level gives them resistance to diseases and mite parasites. And so in this behavior, the bees sniff out diseased larvae, and they sniff this out with their antennae, and their antennae is their nose, if you will, and they're able to detect these diseased larvae, and then they throw them out of the nest. Bees have, have been really taking it on the chin lately. I, mean, I know about the Varroa mite. I did, I did stories about that 15, 20 years ago. But now they've got this colony wasting disease. Do you think your research is going to help bees be sustainable? I hope so. It's going to take a big collective effort. It won't be just me for sure. But there's a lot of good research going on throughout the United States now on how to keep bees healthy. And actually, a lot of good research from Europe and Canada, too. So I think together we'll come up with, we'll try to figure out what exactly is causing colony collapse disorder and what's compromising bee health in general. And I think we can um, make some changes, some cultural changes, some maybe some genetic changes in the bees, the cultural practices in the beekeepers to help keep bees alive. Professor, I got to ask you, do you like honey? I love honey. (laughs) Well, Professor Spivak, I want to thank you very much and, and congratulations. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, by the way, do you know uh, Jason Moran? Did you ever hear of his music? Um, I have to admit, I've only um, heard his music in the last day since I learned <laughs> that he... <laughs> and I hope if he hears that, he's not offended. <laughs> well, he probably just heard about you, Professor, too. <laughs> The music of fellow MacArthur Fellow, Jason Moran. And here's some sweet news that'll prick up the antennae of Mollus Bivik and fellow honey lovers. Scientists believe they may have discovered the cause of the mysterious colony collapse disorder, which has killed up to 40% of the nation's honeybees. Make that causes, 
Researchers have found a fungus and a virus working together may be the culprits. Scientists at the Army's Edgewood Biological Center and the Bee Alert team at the University of Montana report finding the fungus-virus combination in every killed colony, though neither appears able to destroy the bees alone. Other suspected causes of the bizarre disorder have been floated. They include genetically modified crops, pesticides, and radiation from cell phone towers. Coming up, scoping out the starry skies for a possible home just right for E.T. Just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI. Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. An investigation into the BP Gulf oil spill raises serious questions about how the White House handled the disaster and the flow of information to the public. The findings are in preliminary reports by a national commission. Kate Shepard covers energy and environmental politics for Mother Jones magazine. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me. This is a preliminary report, but it's pretty damning. I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, this report really shows that the administration was not necessarily at all prepared for this disaster in the Gulf and didn't react as quickly or um, and was not necessarily as honest with the public about what was going on down there as we'd like to think it was. It was President Obama who appointed the commission in the first place, yeah? It was, but this is a it's a bipartisan commission. It has uh, two chairs, one from either party here, uh, and it's intended to be an uh, you know nonpartisan in its exploration of the disaster and the future of offshore drilling. Well, they charged that the Obama administration, at least in this preliminary report, was too optimistic at the get go that it was slow to respond. Consequently, that absolutely seems like that that was the case. It shows that they initially underestimated the extent of the spill and did not necessarily send enough responders to the area. And then in realizing how bad it was, flooded resources there without necessarily uh, sending them to the right places. I remember they they, they first said there was a thousand barrels and then a few days later it was 5,000. But that was nowhere near really what was spilling into the Gulf. I think this is probably the most interesting part of the report is you see those numbers grow over time. And the report reveals that that 1,000 barrel per day figure that they used for the first week after the spill actually just came from BP. And it, and it seems that it was kind of pulled from the air. The administration didn't really uh, seem to verify it at all and, and relied on that number for the first days. The, the number was later increased to 5,000 barrels per day. But uh, again, the report shows that that number also really seems to have come from nowhere. A scientist at, over at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration came up with that figure, but he was not someone who was necessarily an, an expert uh, in coming up with that kind of calculation, wasn't really using peer-reviewed existing methodologies. And, and even the scientist said that this was just a rough estimate. And then we found out the actual figure was uh, about 12 times that size. It was by August this thing is capped. And Carol Browner, who's the director of the White House Office of Energy and Climate Change Policy, appears on all the networks. And she comes up with a very rosy understanding of how much oil is in the Gulf. 
I think it's also important to note that our scientists uh, have done an initial assessment and more than three quarters of the oil is gone. The vast majority of the oil is gone. It was captured, it was skimmed, it was burned, it was contained. Uh, Mother Nature did her part uh, and that's good news. I think absolutely she was she was wrong. When you actually looked at the report, it showed that 75% of the oil wasn't gone. It was still out there in the environment. It was dispersed. It was on the beaches. It was in the atmosphere in some way. It wasn't gone. It was just maybe not visible. This is something else that this report points out is that the administration also repeatedly said that this is a document that was peer-reviewed by independent experts, and, and, and that's absolutely not the case. That did not happen at all. Kate, when's the final report due? Final report is not due until mid-January. This is just the initial uh, staff draft, so it could change substantially between now and then. Do you expect more revelations? Well, we'll see. One of the the big issues that seems to be impairing the ability of this commission to get information is that they don't have the power of subpoena legislation to give them. That power has uh, stalled in the Senate. If they do get that power, that which will let them call forward witnesses and demand documents, they, they could actually have a lot more information to work with uh, before they put out that final report. Kate, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Kate Shepard covers energy and environmental politics for Mother Jones Magazine. We got this from the Wall Street Journal, not from the papers heard on the street column. It's more like heard on the roof story. At Al Johnson's Swedish restaurant in beautiful Door County, Wisconsin, you'll find traditional Scandinavian meatballs, pancakes, and salmon on the menu, and goats on the roof. We kid you not. The goats are the restaurant's unusual trademark, and owner Lars Johnson will lock legal horns with anyone who dares to copy it. We caught up with Lars Johnson by cell phone early one morning. Hello, hello. Where, where are you right now? We're in the process of putting our goats up on the roof for the day. Goats on the roof. Yeah, well, you know, we, back in, the, in 1973, we brought a building over from Scandinavia, similar to uh, Lincoln Logs, and it's a uh, Norwegian pine building from Norway, and we put grass on our roof, and shortly after that, we decided that the best thing for our restaurant was to let goats graze on the roof. And, and, and how many goats do you got? Usually on the roof itself, there's anywhere from six to eight, and the roof is approximately 15,000 square feet, and it's up and down, and uh, the pitch is similar to any roof, but it's grass, and they, goats are natural climbers, and they're very affectionate animals. Where are they right now? Well, they are on the roof with me this morning. I'm actually talking to you on top of our roof this morning, and it's a beautiful, sunny day in, in Door County, Wisconsin. The goats are a big draw. People flock to your restaurant. They do indeed. We serve about 3,000 people a day in a 124-seat restaurant, and uh, the goats are indeed part of the draw. I guess there's so much of a draw that you've trademarked the goats on the roof. We did, and I guess the legal term is uh, called trade dress, and it's a service mark, and we did this in the, in the mid-'90s. Our law firm recommended to us that we have something that we should protect. Can you, you really can trademark having, having goats on a roof of a restaurant? Well, evidently so. Uh, we filed the mark back in the 90s with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Uh, we have a service mark. Now, I heard you're a real naysayer when it comes to other people putting goats on, <laughs> on their roof. Well, not necessarily true. I think in order to protect the mark, we're always you know interested in who possibly has violated the mark and we're 
certainly interested in talking to people about licensing agreements, and that's the whole intent, is that we're not out to put people out of business. So have other restaurateurs tried to put goats on their roof? Well, to our knowledge, only one in the United States, and and it was down in Georgia, and we certainly um, recognize that he has a very, uh, very viable business and a very popular business, and we entered into an agreement with him so that he can continue keeping his goats on the roof, and uh, I wish them all the, all the luck and continued good success in business. Because I heard that there were some goats that had hopped up at a, um, an IHOP uh, sign in, in Virginia, I guess it was. Yeah, that is indeed true. I guess uh, recently, and there was a very innocent thing that happened on a billboard, I think, and uh, the goats were grazing on the hillside, and goats are climbers. So they would jump up on the billboard, and naturally people would pull over <laughs> and found it very interesting, and, and people were taking pictures of the goats on the billboard. And so there's really no violation of the trademark or trade dress in, in that particular case. But certainly if uh, they... <laughs> appear on, on the roof of any uh, any IHOPs, and then, then there possibly is a violation. So McDonald's has its arches, KFC its kernel, you've got your goats. There you go. Now, I guess you, um, you've you heard all of the goat jokes there are, right? <laughs> Most of them. You got a favorite? Oh, you know, I do have a favorite, you know, but it's funny because uh, I have a great deal of respect for Muhammad Ali, and, and uh, a few years ago he called himself the goat, and I was wondering why he did that. Then if you looked into it a little bit further, the goat stood for greatest of all time. And I thought if if anybody deserves that title, it was Muhammad Ali. <laughs> I, I, have you ever heard this one? Um, when people copy your trademark, it really gets your goat. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, Mr. Johnson, I want to thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you as well. Lars Johnson pastures his goats on the roof of Al Johnson's Swedish restaurant in Door County, Wisconsin. Who hasn't stared into the starry night and felt, you know, alone? Well, seems there are a lot of neighborhoods in our universe, and over the past 20 years, astronomers have discovered hundreds of planets. However, they've been either too big, too small, too hot, or too cold to sustain life. But astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, the director of the Hayden Planetarium, says a newly discovered planet holds out the tantalizing prospect of being just right. Yeah, yeah. It's a jackpot, actually. What we've always been curious about is whether any of them orbited their host star at the right distance where you could sustain liquid water if the planet had an atmosphere. And most of the planets, nearly all of those planets, were not in this sort of Goldilocks zone. The one or few that were are huge Jupiter-sized planets that no one imagines how you'd have life on a Jupiter. So the holy grail in this exercise was trying to find an Earth-sized planet in the Goldilocks zone around one of these stars, and that's what was just announced. This Goldilocks planet, the one that it's outside of our solar system, does it have a name? Uh, well, it's, yeah, Gliese 581G. <laughs> kind of rolls off <laughs> the, the tongue. I uh, know, and Gliese is the name of the catalog. 581, that'd be the number in the catalog. G is the Gth object found in this system. So it's actually, it's not a lone planet in orbit around the single star. There's, there's other stuff there. And so it's part of what's exciting about it. It's, it's a star system that it's a part of. It's where many of the exoplanets uh, have been found. So uh, what exactly is an exoplanet? That's just the word we give to planets outside of our own solar system. So we've got our eight, get over it, 
and then you go to other stars, they've got planets of their own, and they used to be called extrasolar planets, but that's too many syllables and unnecessary, so they're exoplanets. And then there's the field of study that is in search of life off of Earth, and that's exobiology. So the exo is what gets you out of our own solar system. In exobiology, you got to, the X could also be for extreme biology. Yes. In fact, an excellent perceptive point, there's biology on Earth thriving in extreme conditions that would kill us post-haste. And we call those um, extremophiles, actually, lovers of extreme environments. That has allowed people who look for life elsewhere in the universe to cast a much wider net of the conditions under which they think life might thrive, simply because of the broad conditions that we find life thriving here on Earth. High temperature, low temperature, high pressure, high radiation. And you say, hey, wait a minute. It doesn't just need a room temperature warm pond. If it can thrive in all these conditions, bacterial life that is, then why not look in many more places than we had before? Yeah, it turns out that life is so tenacious, it really can exist in very extreme conditions. Right. Not all life, just there's some life that can and does and thrives. And so... But what it means is if you need intelligent life to have the warm pond, forget it. Just <laughs> figure out how to talk to bacteria, and that might be all you'll be finding. But nonetheless, it would still be a remarkable discovery to find life of any variety out there, even if it's just single-celled life. But if we went to an exoplanet, we could literally trip over something, and we might not know its life. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting philosophical point, whether there could be forms of life that are beyond our awareness or our capacity to even register as life. And I once sat a little too long with a philosopher who, towards the end, was saying, I wonder if rocks are alive. I said, okay, I'm done with this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not going there with you on that one. All right? Take that one back to the philosophy coffee lounge. But normally when we think of life, we think of a metabolism, an ability to process energy. We think of its ability to make copies of itself. And now, But by the way, biologists, as much as they might celebrate the diversity of life on Earth— at the end of the day, they have to confess that they have only a sample of one because all life on Earth has common DNA, all life we've ever investigated, the oak trees, lobsters, jellyfish, humans. And as a result, we're not really in a position to assert what the minimum criterion for life should be. And so that's an unfortunate situation, and that's part of what feeds this eager search for life elsewhere in the universe and nearby stars. In astronomy, nearby is a relative term. <laughs> <laughs> I should have made that clear. You're absolutely right. This one is about 20 light years away, which if you actually wanted to visit it on the very fastest spacecraft we have ever launched, it would take about 300,000 years. So, <laughs> so you need really fertile people on board this spacecraft or just, you know, just be happy with the telescopes. I'd rather just stay home at Earth on Earth and use my telescope to check it out. Well, the Russians uh, say they're going to be launching a space hotel soon and within five years. Have you heard about that? Yeah. Well, you know, everybody, here's, here's the problem. Normally, we are at the head of this sort of innovation and, and entrepreneurship. And my big concern is, just as an American, that the rest of the world has discovered space. We know that. China's just sent a mission to the moon just a few days ago. And... Here we are trying to convince ourselves and Congress that it's a cool thing to do and that there's unlimited resources. And people aren't listening as strongly in America as they are listening in other countries. So, sure, more power to them. 
put up a hotel. And then that means they collect our rent. <laughs> That's just how that goes, <laughs> you know. Well, I'm just thinking about all the frequent fly miles I could have by going to this Russian hotel, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I bet they'd have to recalculate what the unit of reward is. Frequent light years, actually. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, he's director of the Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History. Dr. T, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You can hear our program anytime on our website or get a download for your MP3 player. The address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. There you'll also find pictures and a lot more information about our stories. And check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And while you're online, visit MyPlanetHarmony.com. Our sister program, Planet Harmony, welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. From space exploration in search of distant planets to a seafarer seeking a distant place on Earth. As every school kid knows, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And as Bird Notes' Frank Corrado recounts, he discovered birds. As Christopher Columbus neared land in 1492, clues in the form of birds gave him hope that landfall was not far off. We read from his journal. 14 September. The crew of the Nina stated that they had seen a type of tern which never goes farther than 25 leagues from the land. 17 September. This morning we saw a tropic bird which does not sleep at sea. 19 September. This day, a pelican came on board. These birds are not accustomed to go 20 leagues from land. By late September, Columbus's men were beginning to feel desperate about reaching land. Perhaps to soothe their fears, on September 30th, he wrote, Four tropic birds came to the ship, a clear sign of land, for so many birds of one sort together show that they are not straying about having lost themselves. 7 October. Observed large flocks of birds coming from the north and making for the southwest. We accordingly shifted course. If you should happen to travel to the Bahamas this winter, you may see descendants of the sandwich terns that were there when Columbus's ships landed on October 12, 1492. Our bird note was narrated by Frank Corrado. For photos and more info, chart a course for our website, LOE.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Valinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Sriskandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Nora Doyle Burr and Hannah Lyles. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurish Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies, 
Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org. And Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. Pax World, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.